1: Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I've returned to the uh, New Books Network. This is the Archaeology Channel. We're here today with Catherine Lomas. Uh, she's a historian and archaeologist from Durham University. We're going to be discussing her new publication, published actually last year, um, 2018, by Harvard University Press, The Rise of Rome, From the Iron Age to the Punic Wars. Welcome, Catherine.
2: Hi. Um, good to Good to talk to you.
1: Uh, So before we dive in to the book, can you, uh, I know there's a couple um, editions of this book. Um, Can you, uh, US and UK editions, can you. Describe the covers of both and uh, the reasons for their selections, if you know.
2: Okay. Um, the Harvard University Press, the U.S. US and North American edition, uh, has a very nice stylized uh, watercolor of um, actually imperial Rome rather than uh, early Rome, uh, just with a, a picture of temples and the Palatine and the, the Colosseum in the background. I didn't actually have any, co- any, any input into that, so I don't know why they chose that. Um, I have to say it's a very nice image, but it is very much Rome was fully arisen rather than Rome the period I'm writing about Um, the UK edition which I did have uh, some input into uh, published by Profile um, has an image of a a, a Campanian tomb painting from the 4th century BC um, and it shows a Campanian warrior uh, mounted on a horse um, obviously heading off to the afterlife but it gives gives a very nice sense of what the art and the the self image of of the the, um, elite of that region was like at that period of time
1: so, what prompted you to study the development of Rome from its origins in the mid-3rd century, the nature of its control over Italy, and the reasons why it was able to achieve this domination? Can you also elaborate on your contention that the ethnic and cultural diversity of archaic Italy was no less notable than its geographical variety?
2: Okay. Okay. Um- well, my approach in this book really stems from the fact that I'm an expert in Italian rather than specifically Roman archaeology. And one of the things that I uh, was really quite keen on uh, was looking at Rome in its, in its wider Italian context. Um, and one of the reasons for this, which is actually to take your, the second part of your question first, is that unlike ancient Greece, uh, Italy is a region of very many different cultures, you um, Each region has its own distinct culture, its own linguistic and ethnic groups, um, and it remains a very diverse region uh, until really well after the the period of Roman conquest. uh, We find that some of the Italian cultures uh, really really, uh, persist until really quite late, in second, first century BC. Um, And it's also a very uh, geographically diverse area. in many areas, for example, central Italy and southeast Italy, uh, we find that there's a lot of uh, fairly low-lying, very good arable lands. Um, city-states develop as the main form of social and political organization here uh, between the 8th and 7th centuries BC, um, and that's, uh, and they urbanize very quickly. Um, but the Apenni- Apennine Italy is very different. Um, it develops on a very different trajectory, um, A social and political organisation is based around a network of smaller settlements, which really don't nucleate into large uh, urban-style settlements, Um, and um, it has a a very different uh, social and economic structure. Um, So, it's a very diverse region uh, of the world. and one of the things that I think is, is is impossible, really, is to understand the early development of Rome, um, and still less its later domination of Italy, uh, in isolation from this wider Italian context. Um, so that was really what informed my, my basic approach. Um, and the way I structured the book actually reflects that. Um, what I've done is alternated chapters on Italy and Rome. So basically I'm looking at the wider developments in Italy and then Rome as a more detailed case study of how how those play out. Um, And what I'm trying to do is bring out the similarities and differences between how Rome and the other Italian communities developed. Um, Specifically, why Rome itself is is so important is that uh, early Rome produces some really fascinating historical problems, uh, both on the archaeological and historical side. Um, The site of the city, obviously, has been occupied since at least the Bronze Age, possibly even earlier. Uh, So... Archaeological data about the Leolus settlement is best very episodic. Um, what you tend to be looking at is sort of slices through the stratigraphy of the, of the city rather than uh, something which will allow you to, to form a sort of fully joined up comprehensive plan of the early city. Um, and the site suffers from problems which are common to all urban sites where later buildings are overlying much of the early settlement. Um, I mean, nobody's going to let us to knock down the Colosseum to find out what the early stuff underneath was, was like. Um, um, so we're really reconstructing the archaeology of the early city from fragments. Um, and on the written side, we have a, a really frustrating situation where we have a detailed accounts uh, from of the early history of Rome, uh, but they're all written at a much later date. Uh, people like Dionysius of Halicarnassus and Livy, who are the two most comprehensive surviving accounts, uh, date to the Augustan period. Uh, so even the earliest accounts of the development of Rome... Um, which only survive in fragments, only date to the 3rd century BC. Uh, so that's, there's real problems about how we study this. Where did the Greek and Roman historians who were writing these later accounts get their information from? How reliable are they? So there's some really chewy archaeological and historical problems here. And the challenge for writing an account of early Rome is really to try and evaluate all these various elements and piece them together into a more or less coherent account and then try to work out... What was different about Rome? Um, The other thing that I was really trying to do was really work out what was different about Rome that enabled it to really go on and then dominate the rest of Italy and obviously then found a a Mediterranean-wide empire.
1: For our listeners, uh, please provide archaeological examples from cemeteries, if you can, as well as settlements that trace the expansion of proto-urbanization in Villanova, Etruria, and Latium as well as the impulses for Greek migrations into Italy during the late Bronze and Iron Ages. What does the preponderance of funerary sources and inscriptions reveal about archaic Italian connections to the wider Mediterranean and Aegean worlds?
2: Okay. Well, perhaps to start with uh, central Italy. Um, the fascinating thing here is that a large area of central Italy, uh, central Italy shares a very similar trajectory of development. Um, what we find throughout Etruria, which is really the area north of the Tiber, then Latium south of the Tiber, and, and also Campania, further south still, around the Bay of Naples, is that we have a similar pattern in all three regions of small settlements which start to co- coalesce into larger and more complex ones during the course of the 8th century B.C., um, now these are not yet fully formed cities, um, but they are bigger than villages, and they're really quite complex in structures. Um, they're what archaeologists term proto urban settlements, um, and they tend not to have a fully nucleated form. Uh, but at the same time, the fact that they are quite a bit larger than um, a village sized community means that they, they they are developing some level of social and political complexity. Um, It's not always easy to reconstruct these from archaeological sources, um, but uh, perhaps to look um, at one of the most intensively studied examples, or uh, as an example, um, the site of Vey, which was later went on to be one of the great cities of Etruria, just north of the River Tiber from Rome, uh, was in the Villanovan period, um, a plateau-occupied by a group of at least five, and possibly somewhat more, uh, villagers, each of which consisted of uh, probably a population of about a thousand people thereabouts. Um, Each of them had its own area of burials, um, and some of them have evidence of of, um, votive or cult activity, uh, which suggests they had had their own religious centres. What they were composed of was basically clusters of huts made of wood on stone foundations, thatched roofs, typically with one or two rooms, so we're not talking about anything very grand. Uh, but it, they are; it is a bigger community than, than just a village-sized community. And perhaps crucially, uh, these are far too close together to have been fully independent communities. With uh, archaeologists think that they must have had some sort of interrelationship, um, and they've, there's possible shared defences uh, on around the, the group, this group of, of settlements. Um, so the way that archaeologists are thinking about this now is that. This isn't a cluster of individual villages, uh, but part of a larger settlement in which each subgroup within the city, um, maybe an extended family or clan, we don't know, uh, has its own living and burial areas. But but at the same time, it still forms a, 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 a settlement, um, which was a single unit. Um, so this seems to this is this is the the basic trajectory of development throughout throughout that central Italian area and that that includes Rome, which is something I can say a bit more about later if you'd like me to. Um, the other big story we have in the eighth century is uh, population change in southern Italy, uh, because this is the area when large numbers of Greek migrants start arriving on, along the shores of southern Italy and Campania. Um, we know that contacts with Greece and the Aegean are already very very well established. Um, they, they, they can be traced right back to the Mycenaean period. Uh, but sometime in the 8th century BC, we find that um, the number of migrants across the Aegean uh, who are actually staying and settling, suddenly it suddenly goes up. Um, um, the earliest example... Um, Quite early in the 8th century, is a permanent settlement of Greeks, um, although not exclusively Greeks, um, uh, which was set up at um, uh, Pythicusi, at what was modern Laco Ameno on, on the island of Ischia. And this is a, a multi ethnic community. Um, there are Phoenicians, there's, there are, there's local Italian population there as well, but but there are lots of Greeks. Um, and By the end of the 8th century we find that there are Greek settlements all the way around the coast of Italy from Taras in Puglia on the heel of Italy right up to Cumae on the north side of the Bay of Naples. Um, now one of the big questions is why this happened. Um, the reasons aren't entirely clear. Um, the traditional explanation, which is something we find in our written ancient sources, is that the population of Greece was out, outstripping resources and people were migrating for economic reasons. Um, but at the same time, it's quite difficult to believe that there was such strong demographic pressure on Greece in the as early as the 8th century that it was causing this expansion um, and migration. Um, It's quite likely that economic reasons did play a part. Um, Many areas of of southern Italy are much richer in uh, resources, um, mineral resources, uh, good agricultural land and so forth, uh, than many parts of Greece. Uh, So it's likely that people who had already had connections with Italy, who were trading with Italy, suddenly sort of thought, ah, right, you know, this is a nice place to live, we can have some of this. so, it's possible that a demand for resources does underpin this, um, but at the same time, uh, it's possibly not the whole um, story. Um, one of the things that's actually quite significant about Pisacusa is its location. It's on the, on an island off the, off the coast of Naples, um, and the reason why that's significant is that it's on a very well-established long-distance trade route, which runs from uh, the far western of the Mediterranean through to Crete and Cyprus. And one of the things that seems to drive this trade is trade in mineral ores. Um, there's a ridge of hills in northern Etruria called the Colline Metallifere in modern Italian, uh, the metal bearing hills, which is very rich in mineral ores. Um, and there's a lot of evidence of smelting at Pithecusae, and also finds of metal ingots um, in that region. Uh, so what we think is happening is that uh, more and more people are getting uh, exploiting the mineral resources of northern Etruria, and more and more people are getting involved in the trade of shipping that out uh, to offshore islands, uh, smelting it, and then uh, uh, trading it on. Uh, so that that trade route uh, linking the the eastern and western Mediterranean seems to be quite significant in why Greeks were settling in the west. Um, Other factors may likely to have been social or political. Um, Ancient accounts of foundations of early colonies frequently mention political conflict, for instance, as a reason for settlers leaving home. Cumai um, is settled by refugees from a war in Euboea. Um, Taras is settled by a group of Spartans who seem to have been kicked out of Sparta um, because they were illegitimate and therefore would not full Spartan citizens, didn't have full Spartan citizenship. Um, so there are a range of reasons which seem to have triggered that uh, uh, Greek diaspora. Uh, but the, the net result is that we do have these very substantial Greek settlements um, uh, around the, the south coast of Italy. Um, but the, the wider background to that I think undoubtedly is the fact that the Mediterranean as a whole is a very inter- in, intensely interconnected region and there are well-established contacts between Italy and the Aegean world by this date. Um goods, uh, particularly prestige goods uh, from Greece and also from Egypt and the, the, the Near East are found throughout central Italy um, so there's clearly well-established trade in manufactured objects um, the, the finds of metal ingots in, indicate that there is trade in raw material going the other way um, and uh, there's quite probably uh, evidence of uh, greek traders and artisans uh, elsewhere in, in italy um, i think one of the most intriguing examples actually as just a specific exa- example of, of of the complexity is um, the earliest inscription which is found in italy um, it dates to the early 8th century Uh, It was found in a grave at a place called Osteria dell'Oza, which is just south of Rome. It's near the later settlement of Gabii. Um, And it was written in Greek script um, and possibly Greek language. Um, it's it's a single word, it's possibly a personal name, uh, but it was descri- inscribed on a very distinctive type of local pot. Um, so it demonstrates that not only that writing and literacy are becoming established quite early, uh, but also that uh, tech, um, intellectual technologies like, like writing and, and the alphabet are coming in from Greece. Um, and also that contact with Greeks is not just limited to trade in material goods, they're, they're obviously st- Settlers or travelers from the Aegean in in the region, um, so one of the things that I I think I was trying to get across with this was not not just how urbanisation develops locally, but also the the inter- interconnected nature of Italy and um, uh, well the whole of Italy and um, and also its multiethnic nature at this this date.
1: Similarly, please discuss archaeological examples that trace the settlement in history of Rome, as well as familial warrior latial culture, to the end of the 8th century BCE. How do rituals and festivals, as well as the cityscape, illustrate your contention that rites associated with the Trojan Aeneas, as well as uh, Romulus, changed through time?
2: um well one thing that i think uh, is important about rome is that uh, it's early development has some of the same ca- ca- characteristics of that in villanova as villanova and, Vey and other etruscan se- settlements um excavations on um the Palatine Hill um, and on the Capitoline Hill, two of the key areas in central Rome, have both uh, revealed uh, remains of settlement of clusters of thatched wooden huts, uh, very similar to the ones that are found at Vey. Um, And so we know that there were were eighth century settlements on at least two of the key hills uh, in the the centre of of the later city. And there may, may well have been settlements on various of the other hills as well um The problem here, of course is that veii is an is, a, is is an abandoned city on a, on an open plateau and therefore you can excavate it and survey it um obviously with the Rome being continuously occupied we can't really get it um systematically at how, how many of the settle, uh, how many of the hills were settled but there there are there there is early material that' turned up from, from various other locations in the city as well um, we also have deposit of, deposits of votive objects, which show that cult, pla- cult places have been established. Um, there's one on the Capitoline, close to the site of the Capitoline Temple, which, which is um, uh, a key area of the city. Um, and also, intriguingly, on the Palatine, or perhaps more correctly, at the base of the Palatine, uh, we have a, a wall with a gateway. Uh, so there's obviously some sort of demarcation boundary there. Um most archaeologists think that it's not actually a defensive wall, because uh, otherwise, why would it be at the bottom of the hill rather than the top, where you know, which is a more natural defensive area? Uh, but it shows that the, the settlement had a demarcated boundary, and that's, that's quite important, because the Romans were quite big on boundaries. It was quite important to, to, to the way settlements were defined. Um, There are also some early burials in the area of the later Forum Romanum, which is at the foot of the Palatine and the Capitoline. Um, But the main areas of burials are actually on the Esquiline and Quirinal Hills. Um, So we seem to have the same pattern that we have at Vey of of a a distributed settlement with lots of little villages very close together uh, and probably with connections between them. Um, by the end of the 8th century, we're finding that there, there are developments in the Forum uh, which may indicate that that's becoming a shared communal area for all of these little settlements. Um, the Forum, become, which is originally marshy, is, is drained um, and uh, it seems to have been re- re- um, reserved for communal use. Uh, the burials disappear. Um, the cemeteries now are exclusively on the Iskall line. Um, So it's a very similar pattern to what we find in Etruria of um, proto-urban settlement with uh, separate clusters of of, um, population, but at the same time so close together they probably probably do have some collective identity. Um, One of the other problems for Rome is that Unlike Etruria, where the cemeteries are actually much better excav- excavated than the settlements, uh, it's the reverse in Rome. We don't, we don't have quite the depth of funerary evidence, and it's nowhere near as comprehensive as it is for, for other sites. Um, so one thing that might help is if I answer the question about cemeteries in, in, in the context of, of a different site, which was Osteria dell'Oza, the one where the early Greek inscription was found. Um, this is a few kilometres south of Rome. It's close to the archaic city of Gabii, Um, and it's one of the most extensively studied cemeteries in the region. Um, And what uh, the excavators have been able to show is that um, people were cremated, uh, their ashes were placed in an urn um, and they were placed in graves along with various personal possessions. Um, But study of the the grave goods has shown that um, they... um, you can, you can, you can, you can dis- distinguish um, male and female burials, um, adults and juveniles. Um, and burials by the end of the 8th century BC seem to, seem to be arranged in what appear to be family groups, uh, many of them with a central burial containing armour or weapons um, and with significantly richer grave goods. So what we seem to have is... Uh, possibly an elite emerging, um, maybe with a warrior identity, which makes the the weapon and weapons and the armor and the the helmets particularly so important if you're, you're commemorating somebody. Um, so that seems to be the basic the basic social structure, uh, family groups with an emerging warrior elite. Um, now you ask about the foundation myths of Rome. Um, these are a particular minefield, um, not because they're particularly unusual. Uh, the idea of a city heroizing its mythical founder and building up a cult around him is, isn't at all unusual. Uh, most other cities in Greece and Italy do it. Uh, but in Rome, there's this sort of level of mythology is, is really quite complicated. Um, the most familiar one uh, is that the city was founded by Romulus and Remus, uh, twins who were uh, dispossessed. Uh, they were the grandsons of the king of Alba Longa, which is a, a settlement um the site of which isn't really known, um, somewhere south of Rome, um, and that they uh, came back um, having been been um, raised by a she-wolf. Um, um, they were rediscovered, they, their identity was discovered, and then they went off and found, found Rome. Um, there's also a kind of prequel to this uh, in which the Trojan prince Aeneas escapes the sack of Troy, flees to Italy, and founds Alba Longa and therefore becomes the ancestor of Romulus and Remus. Um, and these are incredibly important in the Roman sense of their own identity, um, but the interplay between the different strands is is quite interesting, and, and it can be, and, and indeed was, used for various political purposes. Um, the historian Peter Wiseman, for instance, argues that Remus becomes much more prominent in the art and literature of the third century, um, and that the versions of the myth uh, in which he founds a settlement on the Aventine Hill, which is actually just outside the city limits of Rome, uh, uh, is connected with the fact that the Aventine Hill becomes the centre of popular protest in the 5th to 3rd centuries. So he sees Remus as somebody who becomes very politicised um, in that period. Um, Aeneas becomes much more prominent in the reign of the Emperor Augustus uh, because Augustus is a member of the Julian family, uh, which uh, claims descent from Aeneas. Uh, And so, obviously, the presence of Aeneas and the Aeneas myth in Augustan art and literature is very much a symbol symbol of loyalty to Augustus. Um, But the extent to which... um, these myths can be very can be seen as is seen as very central to the Roman sense of who they were uh, can be seen by the fact that, according to ancient writers um the Romans uh, maintained what they believed to be the original house of Romulus on the palatine um and what they what 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 the accounts describe is a thatch and thatched wooden hut of pretty much exactly the kind that we have remains of on the Palatine Hill, which was kind of maintained as a hero shrine to Romulus, uh, well into the later Roman Empire. Um, And it was maintained very meticulously. If if bits fell off or if it was struck by lightning or burnt down, it had to be replaced exactly uh, as it was, um, because it was believed to be the, 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 the hut of the founder. Um, so we, we have a, sen- a very strong sense um, of the way in which these, both these, these the foundation myths can could, could be, could be very, very much m- manipulated in, in, uh, by, by later Romans, but also the, the basic fact that they existed is something that's very powerful and says something to the Romans themselves, very much a, uh, something very powerful about who they thought they were.
1: Why and how did the shift to tumuli burials, varieties of cults, munificent princes, and civilized warriors during the 7th century BCE all demonstrate orientalizing, quoting you, conspicuous consumption and pyramidal uh, sociopolitical stratification across Italy?
2: Okay uh, well the 7th century is a period of intense social and economic change and one of the things we can see is uh, a, an absolute step change in um uh, in 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 um social and uh, economic power um But we can also see a connection with what happened in the 8th century. Um, As I've said, at the end of the 8th century, have the the, the early development of an elite with a warrior identity in many areas of Italy. Uh, But by the 7th century, uh, we get a shift upwards. The elite is now massively super rich and also much more restricted. Um, So the dominant figures in most communities are a very much smaller number of very significantly wealthier individuals who really control uh, all the power and all the access to resources. Um, in terms of how we trace this in, our, in the archaeological record, um, probably the best way to, 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 to demonstrate this is to look at burials uh, because elite burials are now absolutely massive structures. Um, we've not moved on a long way from the, the small individual burials um, of in family clusters, Um, what we now have in areas like Etruria and Latium and also Campania, basically throughout central Italy, is um, tombs consisting of big circular stone foundations which contain very complex tomb chambers built into them or sometimes dug into the subsoil beneath them. Uh, And they're covered with a massive earth mound. Uh, So these are really making a big statement. I mean, they're very visible in the landscape. Um, the tomb chambers are quite complex. Um, typically, what you have is a little set of steps down, um, a vestibule area, and then one or more t- more tomb chambers, which are, are carved into, in, in, into internally to, to mimic the interiors of houses. Um, most of them contain two funerary funerary couches uh, carved out of stone, often with carved stone coverlets and and. and pillows. So it's very, very detailed. Um, and the bodies, um, this was now a human culture rather than a cremating culture, would be placed on these couches, along with their grave goods. Um, and the function of the outer room or vestibule seems to have been for uh, rituals to honour the dead. Uh, so there seems to be some idea that the uh, these tombs become a centre of a sort of family tomb cult where you, you come to, to honour your ancestors. And, um, um uh, and that's perhaps the second important point. These are these are these are not just very visible. They're 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 family tombs, um, they're tombs for a big group of people, um, and they seem designed to be to to, to um reflect the social importance of aristocratic families. Um relatively few of these have been found undisturbed. Um tomb robbing is big business, um and you know, has been since the nineteenth century in, in that part of Italy. Uh Where we do have uh, ones which have been fully excavated, the quantity and quality of the grave goods found in them is absolutely eye-popping. The one that I discuss in the book is the Regolini-Galassi tomb at uh, Caire in southern Etruria, and that contained well over 300 objects, uh, many of them made of precious metal. Um, uh, Another one is the Barberini tomb, uh, which has got... Uh, similar sort of uh, assemblages of goods, and we're talking about things like uh, weapons, armor, jewelry, uh, dinner services, personal possessions, uh, sometimes even inlaid furniture uh, or decorated wagons and or chariots. Uh, so the so the wealth of the, of this society is, is and the the amount of money which these aristocrats are prepared to bury with them uh, to demonstrate their status, presumed in the afterlife, is absolutely amazing. Um, now, this tells us a number of important, uh, uh, about a number of important changes. Um, one is that many Italian societies are now dominated by this wealthy super elite, um, and the other is that conspic- conspicuous consumption, as you, you would rightly say, is an important way of displaying status. Um, The other factor which which you can take away from this is that the clan or the extended family was an important element in aristocratic domination. Uh, We now have societies with a very steep social hierarchy dominated by a small number of elite families and their retainers. Um, So clearly Italian societies have gotten an awful lot richer, uh, but that wealth is is really being controlled by a very small elite. Um, The contents of the tombs also give some insight into how these aristocrats relate to the wider world. Um, you mentioned orientalizing uh, as uh, a description of the, these tombs. Um, the reason for that is that many of the goods are decorated in an artistic style, which is known as orientalizing, and uh, which shows very strong influence of Egyptian and um, Eastern styles. Um, and that in itself is an indication that there is a flourishing international trade in luxury goods uh, and also local manufacture of goods by, by by foreign craftsmen. So, again, it's an indication of the, the interconnected nature of the, the Mediterranean world. Um, we know considerably less about how these elites actually lived, uh, but there are one or two t- intriguing examples uh, of elite houses. Um there's a villa um, known as the Auditorium Villa because it was found during the, 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 the construction of a new concert hall in Rome. Um, but the most, the biggest and best excavated is the so-called Palace at Milo near Siena. Um, and what these show is that uh, these, elite, these members of these elites uh, inhabited substantial buildings, uh, which seem to have served uh, a whole range of purposes. Um, the Merlot in- uh, example has is, is got various. Uh, Big courtyarded um, enclosures uh, uh, and bu- buildings, which which see ancillary uh, so buildings which seem to be for manufacture. Um, so we have space there which seems to be for ritual practice. Uh, there's one area of the site which uh, the layout of which look, looks very much like the interior of an Etruscan temple. Um, we've got bits which are found which which have contained personal possessions which seem to be living quarters um and uh we have these various outbuildings which seem to have been producing uh, manufactured objects uh, apparently for a local market um and perhaps most intriguingly, uh, uh, the building was richly decorated with painted terracottas, uh, uh, some of which form a, a moulded frieze, uh, which depicts uh, some of the scenes of, of aristocratic life. Um, and we get a very strong sense of um, what these people did um, the scenes of banquets, um, formal meetings, processions, uh, chariot races. Um, and also, we get some sense of even of what they looked like. Um, the um, typical um, appearance or of, of a seventh-century aristocrat is very different from the, the sort of the toga-wearing Roman that you kind of think of when you when you mention Romans or um, you know anyone wearing sort of modified Greek dress. Um, they, they, the, 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 the leading men all seem to wear a sort of big sombrero-like hat, and they have sort of long, very highly decorated robes by the look of it um, uh, so as far as we can tell um, when we're looking for evidence of how these elites lived uh, we're looking at large houses which seem to have uh, functioned as, as much as ritual and, and space and space for public meetings as, as for, for living in um, but also these are out in the countryside they're not they're not close to urban or proto-urban settlements. Um, so th- there seems to be a, a sort of sense in which the, these aristocrats lived in the, in these sort of big uh, compounds out, out, out on their estates. Um, one of the uh, effects of this sort of highly aristocratic society is that um, a lot of the contacts between uh, communities are, are mediated through personal connections between aristocratic families. Um, and um, there are plenty of examples of aristocrats who can mi- migrate across state and, and and ethnic boundaries on on the strength of their personal connections. Um, perhaps the, the best example is um, Demaratos, who was a Greek from Corinth, uh, who, according to uh, ancient accounts, in the middle of the seventh century BC, turns up in Tarquinia. Uh, and the reason why he turns up there is he's been kicked out of Corinth by his political enemies. Uh, but the reason why he ends up in 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 Italy is that. Uh, along with all his fr- his family and his retainers, is that he already has trading contacts and a set of personal connections there, and therefore he can simply migrate there and and set up and do whatever it was he did in the uh, rebuilt his life uh, on on the strength of the, those personal contacts. So you know, if you're part of that aristocratic elite, um, you spent a lot of time in, in inter- interacting with your peers from from uh, similar. Um, of, of similar status in in in, in other communities, uh, but you probably don't have a great deal of contact with people below you, other, other than perhaps
0: your own clansmen and retainers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. <coughs> Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: If possible, please also provide archaeological examples of the Roman curia as essential elements of the state and Roman governance by a small elite rather than by a single monarch as well as the shifts in uh, uh, religious practice and the cosmopolitan urbanization of Rome during the 7th century
2: BCE. Um, 7th century Rome is actually a bit of a problem because the evidence is sketchy, to say the very least of it. Uh, so reconstructing <laughs> what happened is often the case of filling in big gaps. Um, and quite often that involves comparison with other settlements. So sometimes a lot of this has to be for inference from what's happening elsewhere. Um, you asked about the Curiae. Um, we know that these, which are thought to be a combination of family and geographical groups, um, are. But we we know we know we know them for, for, for only from ancient accounts of early Rome, which obviously flags up a lot of problems about, you know, are they telling us something accurate and and, you know, have they fully understood how how curiae worked in in, in the early period. Um, we don't have an awful lot of archaeological evidence for them. Um, there is one area just outside the eighth-century Palatine Wall, uh, which some archaeologists have suggested might be a sort of gathering place, which they've equated with the, the uh, an institution called the Curiae Veteres, which are the the ancient Curiae, which is uh, and that might have been a, a, a an area where the Curiae were said to meet. Uh, but that really is only supposition, and, and it it has been challenged. Um, one of the things which I think is actually quite a, a good explanation of how seventh-century Rome developed uh, has been put forward by the Italian archaeologist Nicola terranato uh, who suggested, and I, I actually think this is very plausible, uh, that the communities on the various hills, um, which by this stage seem to have shared a very, a very, a very clearly defined common area of assembly in the Forum, or the area which later became the Forum Romanum, uh, may be inter- interpreted as Gentilicial groups or curiae of some sort. Um, partly he's working on comparison with Veii, where we have this similar dis, uh, dis, pattern, pattern of dispersed clusters of settlement. Um, so um, what, what Terranato thinks is may, maybe the, the individual villages dotted around the hills of Roma are, are really this, the sites of clans and, and therefore maybe you know that that reflects what the sources describe as curiae, uh, but that's uh, a bit um, of a guesstimate, to be honest. Um, you know, we don't we don't actually have enough hard evidence for for what the curiae were or what they did. We just know that they were ancient and that they were quite important to the way the the, the, early, the very early city were, were developed. Um, one thing we also know relatively little about um, is the exercise of political power. Um, one thing that we can be pretty certain of, and I think I'd say this fairly definitely, is that the ancient tradition that Rome only had seven kings uh, from its foundation in the middle of the eighth century up to the end of the re- end of the monarchy in five hundred nine is simply simply not tenable. Um, All of the kings were adults at the time of their accession. Um, They needed to be proven leaders. Uh, So this would actually have required them to have uh, abnormally long lifespans. Um, But one possibility uh, for the 7th century, I think, is that the the, uh, four kings which are mentioned by the sources as the the 7th century kings of Rome... um, may have been not the whole story uh, because our ancient sources also mention uh, the idea of having interregna between kings, um, the sort of gap while a new king was selected. Um, And sometimes uh, Livy implies that these went on for quite a while. Um, So one possible reconstruction that I present in the book is that governance may have varied between periods of monarchical rule by one man uh, and periods in which perhaps the heads of the leading families of Rome may have ruled as a group or shared power between them in some way. Uh, But that really is only a hypothesis based on a combination of ancient sources and the, uh, the, the material evidence um one thing we do know about this period is that rome is growing pretty fast and clearly developing a much stronger collective identity um the first phases of many of the structures connected with city life uh, civic life uh, the um area which was later the senate house um the area which was later the comitium where the, the assembly of the roman people met uh date to the 7th century uh, we don't know whether that was the, the their function at this date, but clearly those areas are are, are already important. Um, we know that the forum has been drained; it has a rudimentary gravel pavement. It's also been cleared of burials, so it's clearly a, being being reserved as a, as a special area for civic activity. Um, and there's a complex of buildings at one end of the forum around the later house of the Vestals and the Domus Publica, um, um, which were in in later Roman. Rome, the headquarters of the cult of Vesta, and the official residence and offices of the the Pontifex Maximus, the chief priest, um, this area is already occupied. Um, There's a 7th century structure which has been uncovered um, underneath the Domus Publica, uh, which seems to be a a large hall lined with benches um, and with cooking facilities, which leads to suggestions that it may have been possibly a, a banqueting hall, uh, maybe somebody, where, where somebody of, of significance held, um, held court. Um, it's not impossible to, return, to 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 identify exactly what the, what the function of this structure was. Uh, but the fact that there's so much going on suggests that Rome is developing as a community really quite fast uh, and it's becoming much more complex. Um, and also I think it's significant that much of this development is focused on areas and structures connected with the the collective life of the community. So it suggests that a much stronger collective identity is building up.
1: According to inscriptions and the archaeological record, how did previous Iron Age settlements, infrastructure, varieties of government, uh, religious confederation, commerce, and changes, general changes in the metropolitan cores of Etruscan expansion um, one or all contribute to the rise of the in- independent Italian city-state in the sixth century BCE.
2: Okay. Uh, well, what happens to seems to have happened during the course of the later seventh and sixth centuries is that settlements grow bigger um, and until they form a fully centralized settlements, something we we'd regard as a sort of nucleated urban settlement. Uh, each of them obviously controlling its own territory um, from which it, it drew much of its wealth. Um, when I talk about cities, we're talking about something much smaller than the modern city. Perhaps I, I should make that clear. We're talking about settlements which range, typically, from uh, uh, around about ten thousand to three hundred, uh, sorry, ten thousand to thirty thousand people. Uh, so it's 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 much smaller than, than than a modern urban settlement. But again, it it's bigger and much more complex in organisation than a, a village type structure. Um, and this event inevitably means that settlements become much more sophisticated, both in their physical layout and their organisation. Um, and perhaps the, the best thing to, best way to answer this is actually to look at what happens in southern Italy, uh, because some of the Greek cities are much better excavated than those in Etruria, where excavation tends to focus on cemeteries. Um, so what we find uh, here in southern Italy is that typically. Um, By the 6th century, um, cities have built themselves substantial stone fortifications, Um, they have nice city walls, Um, they adopt a regular street plan. Um, In the Greek world, that tends to be uh, Organising housing and other buildings around long, narrow, rectangular blocks. Um, In central Italy, the the street grid tends to to work around the basis of square blocks, but it's it's the same same basic principle of of a regular street plan with houses and buildings laid out in a a regular pattern. Um, We also have areas set aside for religious sanctuaries. Uh, We have public buildings, uh, things like theatres, or uh, buildings, which in many cases actually look rather like theatres, set aside for meetings of the city council and, and the, the assembly of the, the people. Um, also, we get a lot more monumentalisation. Um, cult places uh, had previously tended to be open precincts just containing an, an altar and with a marked-out boundary, uh, but many of them now acquire absolutely massive stone temples. Um, I mean, if, to take an example, Pistom, uh in uh, Campania um, has three um Two, two dedicated to Hera at one side of the site, one dedicated to Athena at the other, uh, and the Hera temples are, bo- uh, are both both early, uh, both sixth century, and they, they are absolutely massive. Um, and one of the things that I think is important about this is that these uh, structures are not really about utility. Uh, cities are not building because they feel, that, you know, they absolutely have to have you know, three huge stone temples or whatever. Um, what they're doing is making a big statement about you know, their self-image and their place in the world. Um, uh, Architectural styles in central Italy differ um, and construction methods differ, but we can still see the same trend towards increasing monumentalisation. And what seems to be going on here is that the nature of the ruling elites is changing a bit. Um, We're not talking about democratisation by any means, Um, but uh, the elites are getting wider and less... Uh, and the disparities of wealth and status are are less dramatic than they they are in the 7th century. Um, And also their behaviour is changing. Um, Whereas 7th century aristocrats tend to live out in these uh, compounds in in the countryside, uh, 6th century aristocrats tend to to have moved into the city and are investing their money and uh, resources in their communities uh, rather than just elaborate palaces. as I said, you know, I don't want to overplay that sort of flattening out of the social pyramid because I think this is still very much an elite-dominated society. Um, And uh, we get a very, very vivid sense of the elite lifestyle from looking at the frescoes which decorate tomb chambers in the the city of Tarquinii in Etruria, uh, which depict richly dressed men and women dancing, feasting, hunting, participating in races or watching races and athletic competitions. Um, So we get a very vivid sense that this is a very... Affluent um, aristocratic society, but it's the the the, the aristocracies are not, are not as completely all dominant, and not not quite as small as and, and closed as they they were previously. Um, we don't actually know a great deal about how cities were governed at this date, uh, but in southern Italy, in the Greek cities states, we find that there's there are literary traditions in the sixth century that. Um, some areas, in, in some places, uh, some, certain groups of aristocrats are being kicked out as part as part of uh, a rebellion against their rule, and that a more participatory um, form of government is being introduced based around elected magistrates. Um, the only evidence we've really got from Etruria is uh, an inscription which talks about uh, an official called the Zilat, or Zilath. Um, uh, and that is that word is thought to perhaps indicate a magistrate so maybe they're going down the same route of um rather than having having a monarchical system or being governed by a very small group of aristocrats you you select presumably from amongst the elite um somebody to uh, act as a magistrate for a year or more Um, As far as material culture goes, uh, we know from styles of pottery and metalwork, and also the styles of dress and personal appearance depicted in art, uh, that there are still very close connections between Greek and Italy. Uh, We have a lot of imported Greek goods uh, turning up in big quantities in Metruria and Latium. Um, we also know uh, from concentrations of Greek inscriptions, uh, particularly in port cities such as Gravisca, which is the port of Tarquinii, uh, that there are a lot of Greek traders and artisans living in, in the region. Um, so uh, the connections uh, and the strong level of interconnectivity between Greece and Italy is still quite important to the way these cities develop um, and to the, their material culture and, and to their economy. For
1: the 6th century BC- BCE, Uh, Can you please provide a critical assessment of one or two examples of the archaeological and textual sources for the shift to the Etruscan Latin monarchy, Senate, and Commedia Curiatha? Despite political and central tribal reforms by Servius Tullius, what role did the Roman gentis and Etruscan expansion play in latial socioeconomic systems until a processional traumatic upheaval that uh, culminated in the Republic?
2: Okay. Uh, Well, perhaps to take that in maybe reverse order, um, one of the key features of the 6th century in central Italy is that Etruscan influence um, uh, begins to extend well beyond Etruria. Uh, one of the fascinating things to, to recap to, to what I said earlier on about, about why, why it was Rome that sort of came to dominate Italy is that if you'd asked a political pundit of the 6th century BC who was going to be the big player in, a, in, in, you know, in, in future years in Italy, they would have probably picked one of the Etruscan cities because these were the places with all the, all the wealth and resources. Um, Rome was very much a sort of rank down from that. Um, And what we find in the 6th century is that by that date there are Etruscan settlements in the Po Valley, Uh, Etruscan inscriptions bearing Etruscan names are turning up in quite a big quantity in Campania, Uh, and Etruscan material culture and artistic styles uh, of the period uh, throughout central Italy and and way up into northeastern Italy are showing strong Etruscan influence. Having said that, most scholars don't believe this was a process of conquest or colonisation. Uh, instead, what it seems to reflect is the mobility of people and goods and artistic styles uh, in what, as I've already said, is a highly interconnected society. Um, and Rome is actually a good, ca- good, good case in point for that um, – because uh, by the late 7th century, Roman culture is becoming heavily Etruscanised, um, and that goes hand in hand with a, a tradition in the ancient sources that say that the last three kings uh, of Rome are actually an Etruscan dynasty. Um, the Tarquinius Priscus um, uh, um, and his his, his uh, two successors are, are Etruscan. Um, the basic narrative for this, uh, which we find in Livy and also dynasties of Halicarnassus and others, is that uh, Tarquinius Priscus uh, is actually um, not a Roman. He's an Etruscan called Lucumo, and he arrives in Rome um, because he couldn't make his way in his native Tarquinii, um, and he's adopted by the then king of Rome as his successor and therefore becomes the, the, the sixth king himself, having... Presumably naturalised and taken a, uh, a Roman name in the in the process, uh, he's then succeeded by his adopted son, who is actually of Latin origin, um, Servius Tullius, uh, and he's the man who introduces a set of political and uh, military for- reforms, or at least is credited with, with them in the, the ancient sources, um, and then. Uh, Priscus son Tarquinius Superbus becomes the the last king of Rome and he's depicted in the sources as a massively unpopular and very high-handed but really quite effective ruler uh, who's eventually deposed in 510. Uh, Now, there are lots of problems with that narrative as it stands, not least its chronology. Um, As I've said, it it requires requires us to believe that there are only three kings in well over 100 years. Um, But there are also aspects of it uh, which are quite intriguing because they fit uh, what we know of Etruscan and Roman society, and they're also consistent with the archaeological evidence. uh, for instance, the Tarquin story is very much consistent with what we know of elite mobility with, between cities. Um, and Intriguingly, Tarquin is also said to have been the son of, of, of Demaratus of Corinth, who I mentioned earlier. Um, and that's why he has to leave Tarquinia to get, to get, get ahead, because he's the son of a, a foreigner. Um uh, we know that uh, we do have uh, solid epigraphic evidence that there were kings in Rome in this period because a potsherd has turned up in in Rome uh, of the right date, 6th uh, century, which is inscribed with the word rex, the Latin word for king. Um, there's a very high degree of Etruscanisation of Roman culture at this date, um, uh, and many of the uh, structures which are... Um, attributed by the sources to Tarquinius Superbus can, can actually be archaeologically dated for, to, to the 6th century. Um, for instance, the uh, first phase of the massive stone temple on the Capitoline, uh, which is actually still visible in the basement of the Capitoline Museum. Um, so there's quite a lot of persuasive evidence uh, that... Um, firstly, there's a lot of influence of of, of Etruria on Rome culturally. Um, There's there's some evidence that the the, the city was ruled by kings at this date. Um, And the basic social background of the story is perfectly consistent with what else we know about uh, Italy at this date. Um, When it comes to the Servian reforms, um, which involve reorganising the male population into property classes, which now form the basis both of how people vote in the Commitio Centuriata, um, and um, also um, how they vote when the assembly of the Roman people convenes, uh, and also the, the basis of the, the, their obligation for military service. Um, the problem there is that we don't really know whether this was a single reform, uh, and if so, when it took place, or whether what the sources are doing, which may be more likely, is rationalising um a series of long, a series of changes which were a long-term process, uh, and and putting it into the framework of of a single reform, which they're, they're attributing to to Servius Tullius, um, I actually think that it's much more likely that it was a process rather than a single act. Um, uh, however, we do know that there are similar reforms, uh, to, particularly to military organisation taking place in other Italian cities, um, and I've already mentioned that in some cities of southern Italy, we know that uh, some elements of the aristocracy were being thrown out and replaced by a, a more participatory form of, of rule. Um, we know that uh, from finds of things like armour and weapons, official depictions of armies and uh, also accounts in the ancient sources, uh, that throughout most of it the armies are now no longer mobs of retainers following big aristocrats, but citizen militias cons- who fight as a, as a form of organised heavy infantry, uh, and that's very much the sort, the sort of reform which Servius Tullius and his uh, – or, or the reforms attributed to Servius Tullius, are describing. Um, So all in all, that is not inconsistent with what's going on elsewhere in Italy, but whether we can pin it down to a single person called Servius Tullius is the the question which I think has to remain open. Um, And finally, uh, the story of the ejection of the Tarquins uh, in uh, 510 uh, is an interesting one because ancient sources describe it as a sort of liberation movement. It's all very stirring and it's all about you know, the cruel tyrant being kicked out uh, in disgust at his oppressive rule, and in particular, his failure to punish an outrage by one of his relatives who rapes the wife of a friend. Um, And in fact, if we look at what's happening, uh, and they plot out a reconstructed family tree of the Tarquin Tarquin dynasty, which I've done in the book. what we find is that the people who lead the revolt are actually members of the, of the, of the Tarquin family themselves. Uh, so what we seem to have is a, is a dynastic struggle within, within the ruling family, uh, which eventually leads to uh, the head to head of the, the, the dynasty being kicked out and uh, uh, a, a big reform in Rome. Um, However, set against that, the title of, of rex, king, uh, becomes so reviled at Rome that it's never, ever used again. And in fact, one of the things that, pe- that later politicians sometimes do if they want to smear their energies, er- enemies is saying, ah, you know, he's aiming at kingship. Um, and Ju- Julius Caesar famously arranged to be presented with a crown just to be seen to be public- publicly rejecting it so that he wasn't becoming a rex. Uh, so whatever the last king got up to, I think it, we can be f- safe to say it was something pretty highly unpopular. Um but at the same time, um, I think that the uh, the basic trajectory that we're looking at uh, of development is consistent both with a lot of Etruscan influence at Rome, but not necessarily Etruscan domination or rule, uh, and also consistent with what's happening elsewhere in Italy.
1: How did secessions of the uh, plebeians, the December at 12 tables, the Val- uh, Valerio-Horatian laws, and uh, or uh, wartime exigencies, one or all, reconfigure political institutions, plebeian versus uh, patrician, as well as the role of a family familial unit.
2: Okay. Uh, well, the early Roman Republic, uh, which was what was established following the the ejection of the Tarquins um, and ran from five oh nine, is very much a period of experimentation. Um, we're very very used to the idea of the Roman Republic as something which has quite a strong, quite a, quite a well defined structure. Um, is ruled by by a clear hierarchy of magistrates, each serving for one year. Um, you know, dominated by the Senate, with a bit of input from the Assembly of the People. Uh, but that is very much the later Republic. Um, at this date, it's all very much more fluid. Um, the basic t- idea uh, of um, time limits, which um, Uh, confer power on magistrates who are elected only for a period of a year, um, and of collegiality, which presents a single individual dominating again, seems to have been established very early. And that that basically seems to be a case of you take the power of the king and you transfer it to elected magistrates, um, but they, they, they come in pairs or more than two sometimes, um, and they only serve for a year, and therefore you can't get the sort of concentration of of, of monarchical power in the hands of one person. Um, But many of the more familiar aspects of a republic seem to have been developed much later. Um, At this early period, what we tend to find is lots of anomalies, or things that by later standards look quite anomalous. Um, Chief magistrates uh, called the Praetor Maximus, or sometimes boards of consular tribunes, uh, would Uh, rather than the two consuls which become become the latest standard. Um, The role of the Senate is deeply unclear and seems to be much smaller than it it later became. Um, And uh, the role of the popular assembly, the the assembly of the Roman peoples, is, is, is not terribly well defined. And just to add to the sort of general sense of sort of murkiness and instability and unease, uh, the fifth century is also a period of social and economic stress. That's not just at Rome, it's Italy wide. Um, Quite what was going on, however, is quite difficult to pin down. Um, The root of the problem is that our sources present these difficulties as as a struggle between two clearly defined social orders. They actually call it the struggle of the orders. so on the one hand, uh, we have the patricians, um, who hold all the power because only they are eligible for religious or political office, and they control most of the land and resource, and economic resources. And then on the other hand, we have the plebeians, who is basically everyone else. Um, now, the problem with that is that, that it's highly unlikely that the distinction is that clear cut, and particularly not at this early date. Uh, and in fact, some scholars believe that the distinction and the, local, the legal and political Privileges associated with being a patrician don't really crystallize until the fourth century, um, and the fact that we don't know the status of many of the leading families in the fifth century might actually support that. Although I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that it answers all our questions. Um, so far from being a struggle for political power between two clearly defined orders, uh, the fifth century social social con- uh, conflicts really center on two two economic issues. Um, lands um, access to, to, to land, um, who owns land, what you can do with it, uh, and debt rather than access to power. So it's really really a set of economic problems about uh, poverty, uh, shortage of land uh, which are obviously the main way, main way of people earning their living in a, a subsistence farming society, unfair distribution of land, uh, and the practice of what's known as nexum, which is debt bondage. Um, in other words, you fall, if you fall into debt, uh, somebody can enslave you and make you work off that debt. Um, so these seem to be the key sources of strain. Um, food shortages also seem to be a problem. Um, ancient sources record a number of occasions in the 5th century when grain has to be brought in uh, from elsewhere to alleviate f- uh, famine. Um, and this is the sort of information which was we know was preserved in the official records at of Rome. So it may actually have some sort of proper basis in in fact. Uh, Now, all of these upheavals triggered a number of what are called secessions, uh, in which chunks of the population basically go on strike. Um, Parts of the population withdraw from the city uh, to the Aventine Hill, which is just outside the city boundary, um, and uh, withdraw their economic labour, and sometimes their military uh, labour if if Rome is at war. Um, And that forces the authorities to make concessions. (coughs) And uh, the concessions which uh, are, are arrived at um, are uh centre on restrictions on debt and the creation of uh, various political bodies, um, magistracies magistrates with extraordinary powers and also a special plebeian assembly, which are only open to the plebeians, um, which is designed to give some sort of uh, protection from exploitation. Um, the the main magistracy, which is set up, the so called Tribune of the People, uh, is uh, has some really quite extraordinary powers by Roman standards. Uh, a Tribune is sacrosanct, uh, so nobody can do anything to him because that would be against the the gods. Um, uh, and it's to stop um, you know ill 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 mannered or or ill intentioned patricians sort of doing doing bad things to the tribunes. to Stop whatever they, whatever the tribunes are getting up to. Um, uh, they also have extraordinary powers to do things like convening an assembly and, uh, and addressing it, which other magistrates uh, uh, more than other magistrates. And they 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 uh, uh, have a power of veto, so they can if they don't like uh, a measure which has been put forward, they can they can come in and say I veto that. And they have provocatio, which is a, a right of, of protecting somebody, a plebeian who is being being oppressed by whoever. Um, so they have quite wide ranging powers. Um, uh, but by by 449 BC, which is the date of the laws that you, you mentioned, the Valerio-Horatian laws, um, what we find is that these sort of protections of plebeians from arbitrary action by patricians are, are, be, are being codified. Um, that's basically what the Valerio-Horatian laws, laws do. Uh, they also regulate debt and usury, um, and um, they also implement some of the laws of the Twelve Tables, which is Roman, Rome's first written law code. Um, and that the the idea that law can be has has to be written down and codified it seems it seems to be one of the key plebeian demands, um, which in fact may have been double edged, uh, because this is a society uh, remember where not very many people can read, so it could could be seen as a regressive measure, um, you know if you restrict. Um, law and understanding of the law to 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 small segment of people of, of presumably quite elite people who can read it uh if it 's written down then you you might actually be 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 restricting access rather than widening it um but the surviving portions of it do do contain quite a lot of information about fifth century society um and including things like debt land ownership family law um and um uh, uh aspects of 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 that that sort um so ba- basically when we're looking at the early republic we're looking at a period of intense experimentation uh, quite a lot of economic and social stress which which wasn 't just confined to rome it wasn't it wasn't a function of the uh, ejection of the monarchy it's an italy wide phenomenon um uh but we're also dealing with um a period of quite a lot of both political experimentation and, and political conflict conflict between different different aspects of society.
1: Please uh, briefly briefly explain Roman expansion during the fifth and fourth centuries BCE. Um, you, know, you can address uh, issues such as the Cassian Latin League, uh, the Etruscan Wars, the traumatic uh, Gallic invasions, or ad hoc territorial expansion. Um, In so doing, really briefly, what did an increase in temples, the comedium renovations, and archaeological evidence of those courtyard houses reveal about post-Gallic Rome?
2: Um, Well, the Roman expansion of the 5th and into the 4th century is basically a, a response to the fact that once it's Established domination of over its immediate surroundings uh, in the early fifth century, um, and we know we uh, we have evidence for uh, Greek evidence for that. There's a treaty which the Greek historian Polybius records, uh, in which um, he he describes uh, the treaty as as acknowledging that uh, Rome is the dominant power power in Latium. Um, Rome faces quite a strong challenge from Vey, which is just to the north of the, the Tiber. It's the most southerly of the big Etruscan cities, uh, but also a very powerful and unstable situation to the south. Um, so Rome is really um, kind of caught in a bit of a pincer movement here, and it faces a war on two fronts, uh, or a series of intermittent low-level fighting on two fronts. Um, they, because of where it is, it's just over the north. Uh, it's just on the north bank of the Tiber from Rome, is uh, a city w- which you know. It's pretty inevitable that Rome's going to come into conflict with it as soon as it starts developing territorial ambitions to the north. Um, And this conflict with Vei really shapes the middle years of the 5th century quite quite significantly, Uh, but also it vastly enriches the Roman state because after Vei is finally conquered in 396 BC, uh, Rome captures a massive amount of booty. It takes over the territory of Vei, which is huge, Uh, so it brings huge benefits to Rome in the the 4th century. I think the, the period also throws some lights on how states interact with each other in ancient Italy. I've, t- I've talked a lot about the city-state as a, as, a, as a unit, uh, but we know that all the Italian it, states made treaties and alliances with each other, and there's also a long-standing tra- tradition in most areas of Italy for uh, regional uh, leagues, which often have a religious basis, uh, but which also come to involve re- military and political cooperation on some occasions. Um, Perhaps the best known of one of these uh, is actually the Latin League, uh, which is a confederation of states, uh, as the name indicates, uh, from Latium. Uh, it meets at the shrine of Ferentina at a place called Lucas Ferronii near uh, Albano, 25 kilometres south of Rome. Um, its basic function is to celebrate uh, shared religious rites, which are common to all the Latin states, um, and to enable all the Latin states to participate. Uh, so it's very much a symbol of ethnic and cultural uh, identity and unity. Uh, but by the first century, we also know that it mounts joint military operations and therefore has a wider political and, and military purpose. Um, But even as early as the beginning of the fifth century, uh, we can see some ways in which Roman ways of relating to their neighbours are changing. one of the key documents here, um, which uh, we have a text of, um, or what purports to be a text of, recorded by Dionysius of Halicarnassus, is the Cassian Treaty of 493 BC. And the, sign- the reason why it's significant is that it forms the basis of all Rome's later diplomatic and, and uh, treaty relationships. And what it says is that it establishes a peace between Rome and the other signatories, which are basically the Latins and a smaller tribe called the Heneci. um, And um, This piece leaves all the signatories as independent allies, uh, but, and this is the sting in the tail, it requires each party to help each other with military force if they're attacked by an outsider. Um, So it's basically setting up an ongoing military relationship between Rome and the other signatory. In this case, it's it's the collective Latin uh, states. and that's something which, I, which I'll come back to, back to under one of your other questions, because it's quite, it's quite significant of how Rome's domination of Italy uh, develops. Um, the other thing which we know is that there's a tradition that Rome is already confiscating land from its defeated enemies and founding colonies on it, uh, although there's little firm evidence for how many early colonies there were and um, what they looked like. Uh, but it does indicate that Rome is, is starting to develop a permanent presence, presence elsewhere in Italy um even though it's within quite a small area um the other thing to say about this period is that it's a period of intense cult- cultural and ethnic change in large parts of italy um and that is partly di- driven by pro- by large scale migrations um in northern italy these are migrations of celtic peoples uh, across the alps and down into northern italy where they settle um, and in central and southern italy we have a, a, a widespread migration of peoples from the apennines into uh, southern latium campania and many other parts of southern italy um, and the, these are people who speak a language which is related to latin uh, it's called oscan um, but looks quite different um uh, and they develop their own identities as as they go. So there's quite a lot of quite a lot of ethnic change, quite a lot of fl- fluctuating population, and quite a lot of cultural change. Um, and the way this impacts on Rome in the late fifth century is that um, one of the areas which is affected by this migration is is southern Latium. Um, so we get new ethnic groups forming, or at least becoming archaeologically visible for the first time: um, the Volsky, who are perhaps familiar from Shakespeare's Coriolanus, uh, the Aequi, the Hernici, um, uh, and various others. Um, so Rome basically is fl- faced with quite a quite a fluid situation on its on the southern borders of the area that it that it already has control of. Um, um, and um it aven- it has to it has to fight a series a long ongoing series of campaigns against against these various peoples um perhaps more seriously uh, rome itself um takes a bit of a battering in uh the, uh the 390s uh when an army of gauls which is making its way down through italy um we don't know quite what they were doing there, but it seems likely that it was groups of Gallic warriors from northern Italy who hadn't got any land or means of supporting themselves and were making their way south to hire themselves out as mercenaries in Sicily. Um, but that that, that that army comes down through through Italy. Um, Rome uh, rather takes its eye off the ball. The Senate rather underestimates this, and the, and the Roman army gets just gets completely wiped out by these people. And the tradition is that Rome itself is sacked. Um, uh, and then... They move on and go and do whatever they were planning to go and do, do in Sicily. Um, so the, um, but this is a really traumatic event in the Roman psyche. Um, the, uh, the anniversary of the, the battle at which the Gauls defeat the Roman army, the Battle of the Alia, is, is, is something which is a sort of really black date in the Roman calendar for, for uh, you know many centuries afterwards. Um, uh, the other side of that is that it necessitates a quite a major rebuilding of the city, Um Uh, There's even a suggestion that the city could be moved to a more defensible site, Um, the site of Vei, which has been destroyed by Rome some years earlier, was being eyed up for it. But the Romans decide that they're going to stay put. Um, uh, But they put a lot of money, and some of that money does come from the conquest of Vei into reconstructing the city. Um, uh, There's a new... And very state-of-the-art city wall, um, part of which can still be seen outside Termini Station, uh, which is constructed uh, using Greek techniques and possibly Greek um, artisans to build it. Uh, and that probably is intended not just to be a, a defence, but to signal that Rome regards itself as very much up there as, as an equal with the Greek cities of, of Southern Italy. Um, it involved building many new temples, um, some of which are politically significant. Uh, the Temple of Concord, for instance, may have been to signal uh, harmony after another outbreak of the struggle of the orders. Um, and also temple building is connected very closely with military conquest, uh, because uh, military conquest um, and paying for temple building out of the booty of a successful campaign is something which, which many many successful generals do, Um Dedicating a temple is a way of repaying the, the god's victory. It also provides a very handy visual reminder to the population of the generosity and the military achievements of the general who pays for it. Uh, so, temple building has a, has a, has quite a quite a lot of different overtones. Um, And one of the things which I think is significant here is this investment in both temple building and the structures connected with the political life of Rome, such as the Comitium, are very much a striking symbol of Rome's ambition to be taken seriously as one of the leading cities of Italy at this date.
1: How did uh, debt and land distribution contribute to your periodization of the resumed struggle of the orders? Um, In your response, you can address, uh, you can critically assess evidence for the introduction of the Licinio Sexto Laws in 367 BCE, um, Lex Gunica, etc.
2: Okay. Um, by the time we get to the fourth century, um, the struggle of the orders is still alive and well and ongoing. Uh, but one of the reasons why uh, many historians think that we should stop thinking about it as a sort of single monolithic struggle of the authors is a uh, struggle of the orders is that um, it's very uh, the nature nature of the struggle seems to be changing. Um, and there seem to be two distinct strands here. Um, one is the familiar tale that we can trace from the fifth century of debt problems and unequal access, at least in the minds of some of the populations to land. Um, the other is that there's uh, a growing struggle by a developing plebeian elite to gain access to the major offices of state and to gain legal and political par- parity with the patrician nobility. Um, And as I said, this is one of the reasons why many historians, and I I think rightly, reject the idea of the struggle of the orders as a single concept, uh, and also why some of them believe that definitions of patrician and plebeian may have changed and even hardened at this period. Um, (coughs) Paradoxically, um, one of the things which may have sparked this is the military successes and the economic revival that we can see in Rome from uh, around about 420 onwards. Rome becomes more militarily successful. Um, there's an upturn in the amount of land, of, uh, confiscated land available for distribution to the population. The amount of booty and slaves uh, arriving in Rome uh, increases and therefore Rome is reaping the benefits of conquest and military success again. Um, and there seems to be been a perception that the proceeds of success are not being shared fairly. In other words, it's all benefiting the elite but leaving the poor citizens in difficulty. Um, and if we look at the Licinio Sextian reforms, which are named after the two tribunes of the people who proposed them, um, we can see, see this breakdown reflected quite clearly, uh, because two of the three involve debt and land allocation, um, and there seems to be little doubt that these are real issues. Um, the problem with uh, how we interpret these two uh, measures is that some of the details, particularly of the land law, uh, seem suspiciously similar to a much later land distribution law, which was introduced by another tribune, Tiberius Gracchus, in 133 BC, obviously in very different political and, and social economic circumstances. Um, and that's led some historians to suggest that the Licinio Sextian laws either don't exist uh, or are a mere duplicates uh, of Gracchus' law. Um, I personally think there's enough evidence of economic stress and popular unrest to establish it as real. Uh, although I have to say I'm su- I'm suspicious of some of the details. I think that some of the details may have come from the later land law, but not uh, not not you know there's not not there's not enough evidence to to reject it out of hand. Um, the third the Kenyos law is actually very different. Um, what we found in the sixth in the fifth century is that there was a pattern of establishing separate magistrates. Uh, for the plebeians and also a separate assembly for the uh, for the plebeians. Uh, and what that effected, effectively seems to have done is create some, some, something of a state within a state. Um, the other thing it did was that it created a plebeian leadership which starts to become almost an elite in its own right. Uh, one of the things we can see in the 4th century is that uh, this uh, set of leading plebeian families uh, starts agitating for access to... You know the full rights and and political powers of of the share, shared by the the patrician elite. Um, and really, the story of the fourth and early sorry the fourth and the early third centuries is that we're looking at the gradual merging of these in, two strands into a single elite, as the plebeian leadership really fights for access to the main offices of state and the main priesthoods, and also for the removal of some of the remaining civil restrictions. Um, so, what we find with the third Licinio-Saxian law is that it reforms Roman magistracies. Um, it's really the law that establishes the hierarchy of magistracies that we're, we're familiar with from the, the later republic. Um, it uh, establishes the two consuls as the principal officers of state, uh, supported by a, a praetor, which is one rung down, who's responsible for judicial matters, uh, and, and also four ediles, who are responsible for civic administration and, and looking after the city. Um, now, the crucial fact here is that it reserves one of the consulships and two of the Aedal ships uh, every year uh, for plebeians. Uh, so, it, it actually forces a form of power sharing, or at least that, that, that was the idea. Uh, it also open up, opens up one of the colleges of priests to plebeians. Um, The problem with this is that that, it doesn't really seem to have solved the problem, because in 342 BC, uh, there has to be another set of legislation, the Lex Ganukia, which actually reiterates some of these provisions and firms them up, uh, which strongly suggests that Olivia has confused Licinius and Sextius legislation with a later piece of legislation, which is kind of not impossible, but I don't think it really answers all the historical problems. Uh, Or more probably that the new new legislation was needed to sort of firm up these new arrangements and to stamp out abuses. In particular, one of the things it seems to have done uh, was to stop individuals trying to hang on to power by standing for offices um, in numerous years in quick succession. It it imposes a a 10-year gap between one one consulship and the next. and finally, we have the Lexingonia, which opens up the remaining senior priesthoods to plebeians. Um, and that's important because priests at Rome are not religious specialists. Priesthoods are held as part of a public career alongside magistracies, and they're, they're prestigious posts. Um, so really, the story of the 4th century and the later stage of the struggle of the orders is this um, sort of... St- Demands for it for for increasingly high-profile plebeian families to it to actually get full access to power and and to the the mechanisms of state.
1: If possible, uh, please briefly trace the Roman conquest of Italy during the fourth and third centuries BCE. Maybe addressing the Samnite Wars, the Latin War, the Pyrrhic War, and the fate of the Italian League as well.
2: Okay. Um, well, the period between uh, 342 and 3, 2, 270 BC is really the point at which, uh, it's the sort of pivotal point at which Rome moves between, between from being an important regional power in central Italy to being really the dominant force throughout Italy. Uh, and really, by the end of that period, it's very much poised to move on to become a Mediterranean power. Um, and the catalyst for this is twofold. Uh, firstly, there's a struggle between Rome and the Latin League uh, between 341 and 338, uh, which sees Rome decisively establish control of Latium. Uh, and secondly, there is a struggle of the Samnites, the main population of the Central Apennines, for control of Campania, uh, which then leads on to a series of other wars, which um, uh, eventually ends up uh, with the conquest of the whole of, the whole of Italy. Um the Samnites uh, had established control of the central and southern Apennines in the 5th century, uh, and they were a formidable military force. Um, and by the 340s, both they and Rome uh, were de- developing diplomatic connections and territorial interests in Campania. And... Um, And that triggers a series of wars, which Livy describes, obviously the benefits of crashing amounts of hindsight, as being an epic struggle for who would control Italy. Um, You know, he has stirring words about, you know, this determines whether Rome or the Samnites will control Italy. And then the conflict widens out to embrace uh, wars with the Greek population of the south, uh, the Etruscans and Umbrians to the north, and various smaller groups down the the Adriatic coast. Um, And it ends up with the so-called Pyrrhic War against the Greeks of Italy. Um, The name of the war is is so-called because uh, the Greeks of Tarentum, who are the leaders of the the Italian League, the League of Greek cities at that stage, uh, call on Pyrrhus, who is the king of Epirus, and one of the star generals of of his his era, uh, to, to come and help them out. Out. so Pyrrhus turns up with a mercenary army um, and interestingly this is the first meeting between Ro- the Roman army and a really state of the art Hellenistic Greek army um, and it's a conflict which Rome actually comes very close to losing um, the first major, ba- major battle of the war is the original Pyrrhic victory where you know Rome wins but the casualties are so heavy that it can't really do anything constructive with the, with the victory um, but eventually it manages to turn things da- around and, and by um, uh 270, um, it's really uh, suppressed the last of the revolts and, and conquered the whole of uh, of Italy. <coughs> I think at this point, to explain fully, it might be helpful to say a little bit about how Rome controls its conquered territories, uh, because one, one of the key points to make is that Rome doesn't establish direct rule in many cases. Uh, it certainly doesn't, con- it doesn't create a directly ruled empire in Italy. Um, one of the key differences between Rome and other Italian powers, for instance, Caere or Vei or Tarquinii, is that it develops complex and sophisticated new ways of forging international alliances, uh, which allows it to extend its power over defeated enemies, uh, but doing it very much in a sort of arm's length way. Um, what it creates is a very complex mosaic of relationships uh, in Italy. Um, some states are directly incorporated uh, via grants into the Roman state, via grants of Roman citizenship, which means they lose their independence, although they do remain responsible for local administration. Um, Others are tied to Rome by treaties, um, and also Rome continues its uh, practice of founding colonies on land confiscated from defeated enemies. Uh, So it's quite a complicated system. Um, This pattern is established in 338 by the peace settlement between Rome and the Latins. Um, And what happens here is that some of the rebel states that fight Rome are directly incorporated into the Roman state by means of extending Roman citizenship to them, um, which means that they entirely lose their independence. Um, It also creates something called Latin status, uh, which confers some of the enhanced civil rights, but uh, not as much as full Roman citizenship on cities which have that status. Uh, And that, again, is imposed on some of the Latin communities. Um, and from this point on, having Latin status has got nothing to do with being ethnically Latin. It's it's a legal and, and, and political status. Um, and the rest are, all become Roman allies tied to Rome by treaties. Um, but the key thing here is that Rome dissolves the Latin League. And from this point, it establishes the principle that Rome only deals with other other states on a bilateral one-to-one basis. Um, and this has some important implications because it means that Rome now sits at the center of a network of alliances with states which have no relationship with each other and therefore can't easily combine against Rome. Um, one, one of my students years ago once did a wonderful handout for a seminar which showed Rome as a sort of spider sitting at the center of a web with all these allies dotted around on the on the various nodes leading out, out of it. Um, <laughs> The other thing that this establishes, uh, which goes back to the Cassian Treaty that I was talking about earlier, is the principle that Rome can call on its allies for military assistance, um, which means that it can help itself to an awful lot of manpower from other states, if it feels minded, uh, to assist in Roman-led wars. Um, now, technically, it's only supposed to do that if it's protecting those inter- its own interests or those of its allies. But of course, that's a very slippery concept. So, um, you know, it's a lot a of, lot of mani- room for mani- manipulation there. And as I said, it also breaks breaks the link link between citizenship and ethnicity. Uh, from this point onwards, both Latin status and Roman citizenship are a legally transferable set of rights and, and responsibilities, not 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 an indication of your ethnicity. Um, and the other thing that this peace settlement does is is, is establish pockets of um, the colonies on, so, so, so on in some areas, which which further extend Roman territorial control. Um, so what we've got here is a situation where um, Rome is developing tremendous scope to interfere elsewhere in Italy, uh, because as Roman territorial interests grow, uh, the opportunities for further conflict obviously increase. Notionally, prevent, to uh, protect Roman territory or to assist its allies. Uh, but in practice, uh, that tends to be a very malleable concept. Um, technically, in Roman religious war, um, the only bellum custom, the so-called just war, is a defensive one, and unprovoked aggression can earn you a, a bucket load of divine disapproval. Uh, but having areas of territory occupied by Roman colonists, uh, plus numerous allies whose interests need protecting, or maybe wayward allies whose whose interests need suppressing, and it very much enhances Rome's chances of becoming involved in further wars. Uh, So basically you get a kind of domino effect, which is one of the things that that drives um, the, the Roman expansion.
1: So you've you've addressed a couple of components of my next question. Um, so I'll combine the last two questions. Uh, <laughs> um, what about? Uh, I'm particularly interested in uh, uh, voting logistics for uh, Roman expansion, especially um, until the Latin colonies. Um, and then also, what are the third what what is third century BCE evidence for the Lex Hortensian origins of <clears throat> the later Republic? Uh, can you also address maybe cityscape changes? Status is important, I know, et cetera.
2: Well, the whole, the whole question of Roman citizenship and how you exercise it when a very large number of, of Roman citizens don't actually live anywhere near Rome is an interesting question. Um, I guess what this touches on really is the nature of colonisation, uh, because Rome starts really quite early using chunks of confiscated territory to found colonies, um, and that has quite a lot of implications for, it, for, for Italy. Um, some of these consist of small group of colonists sent to mainly to existing communities. Uh, others tend to be larger groups which found new cities. Um, um, and by and large, that's also split between different types of colonies. The, the smaller ones tend to be have Roman citizens status and, and the, the bigger ones tend to be Latin colonies, um, um, which ha- actually retain their own independence, although they have a close relationship with Rome. Um, And colonization, obviously, is a powerful tool for cultural transformation of both Rome and Italy. Um, You know, sending out colonies as a way of distributing the proceeds of conquest because each colonist is awarded a plot of land in a colonized area. Uh, But colonists also act as a conduit for spreading aspects of Roman culture, things like the Latin language, uh, Roman culture, Roman ideas about urban life, um, and um, generally sort of disseminating... You know Roman practice. Um, the reverse of that, which you mentioned, which is how you know, if if a large number of Roman citizens and a large amount of Roman territory is is in some disparate pockets around dotted around Italy, how, how do those citizens actually relate politically to Rome? Is one that we really don't know an awful lot about. Um, and I think the basic answer is it depends on which colonies you're talking about uh because it's likely that uh, people particularly people from members of the elites uh um of colonies which are not that far distant from Rome, say, so places in southern Latium or parts of Etruria. Uh, you know, may, if they had a particular interest in something that was happening politically, may have actually been able to travel to Rome to vote or to um, attend meetings of the Comitium. Um, but obviously, you know, most of most Roman colonists would, wouldn't have that uh, that capability. Uh, so I think the short answer is that we don't. It probably, it restricts. Political participation to quite a small um, segment of the inhabitants of Roman colonies, uh, both socially and, and geographically. Um, you know, if 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 you come from Tusculum, uh, which is within daily travelling distance, obviously you can you know pop down to Rome to exercise your democratic rights if you feel moved to, but you know, or if you if you can afford to. Uh, but if you're from a colony somewhere in Pulia, then clearly you can't, um, or you know, not not that easily. Um, we know that there are occasions. Um, the the big example is actually the Gracian legislation of one thirty three. So it's well outside the time frame of this book, uh, where uh, some Roman politicians were said to actively appeal to to people from outside Rome, and that people did come into Rome. Um, descriptions of the riots that Tiberius Gracchus trying to get his legislation through says that you know there were. So many people from outside Rome came into Rome for the the vote that they they were all sort of piled up and sitting on people's roofs and things of that sort. Um, but we don't really know enough about about how this related, how this worked in in in, in practice. Uh, and the other thing, the other the other limiting factor is, of course, um, you know how many people can you actually physically pack into the forum or the Comitium area where you know the votes. And, that uh, took place and assemblies happened. So, you know, there are big restrictions on how you actually exercise your political rights in Rome. Um, and it probably is quite limiting in terms of who could do that. Um, uh, and, um, you know, geographical distance is obviously one of those limitations. Um, when it comes to um, your question about um, the what happened after the end of the 4th century... Um, What we have in the early 3rd century, again, is a sort of slightly experimental period um, where a number of politicians, and the most high profile was a man called Appius Claudius Caicus, uh, seem to have tried to be quite experimental about how they exercised power. Um, Appius Claudius seems to have tried to uh, conduct um, what he wanted to do by... uh, directly relating, uh, di- directly um, interacting with the the uh, assembly of the Roman people, the Comitia Tributa, um, which is very different to how things work politically uh, in the la- in the later third century, when when very much it's a period of senatorial dominance. Um, but we also um, have around about two eighty seven BC the final act in the, of the struggle of the order- orders um, in the form of a piece, uh, a period of um, unrest over land and debt and general political unhappiness, um, which seems to have been brought to an end by something called the Lex Hortensia, Um, the problem is that we don't actually know know very much at all about what the Lex Hortensia said, other than that the Roman historians think that that was what really drew drew the line underneath the, 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 the conflict. Um, the main clause that we know of is that it seemed to have established the decisions of the plebeian assembly as having the full force of law, um, and therefore it finally merged the two halves of the Roman state. So it really does create a, a, a new a platform for the development of a new unified elite. Um, the other thing uh, which we find as a big uh, development in this period is it's really the point at which the Roman Senate starts to appear, emerge as a, as a major uh, part of the, the Roman Constitution. Um, <coughs> as far as we know, the Senate started out as the advisory council for the kings, and then after 509, uh, it seems to have been become the, the advisory council for the magistrates, um, usually drawn from a bunch of leading men, uh, often ex-magistrates themselves. Uh, but from... At some point in the late 4th century, and we don't, we don't know exactly when, uh, a piece of le- legislation called the Lexavinia was passed, uh, which created a more systematic method of um, appointing senators. Um, all ex- ex-magistrates are eligible, uh, but also the right of vetting and periodically overhauling membership of the sen- Senate is handed over to the censors, who are uh, very senior magistrates who serve for five years each. Um, and they're mandated to periodically scrutinise the Senate lists um check out anyone who thinks they think is is unsuitable to be there, um, either because they haven't fulfilled the membership requirements or they, they're thought to have committed some sort of form of gross moral turpitude. Um, um, and the result of all this is that the Senate becomes the repository of a vast amount of experience on government because it's composed of ex-magistrates, um, but also it develops elements of a pretty much self-perpetuating oligarchy. Um, Because obviously, you know, if you come from a family where there's a tradition of being members of the Senate, your father, your grandfather maybe has held a magistracy, it becomes very much easier to have the connections and also the finance to uh, stand for election yourself. Um, Which is not to say that it was a completely closed aristocracy. It wasn't. Um, So-called new men who didn't have... um, uh, senatorial forebears could and and indeed did get elected, but they're not, not enormously numerous. Um, and certainly, by the time you get beyond the period of this book and into the late second and first centuries BC, you you, you, you come down to a situation where new men are as rare as hen's teeth. Um, you know, Marcus Tullius Cicero was the obvious example, who was one, but he was uh, a very rare example. Um, I mean, prestige is is cumulative, Uh, so having forebears who hold office and have been granted triumphs and paid for public works and et cetera uh, all all helps. Um, And uh, you can see the way that status becomes really quite performative uh, in this period. Um, uh, Elite families, senatorial families... um, you know, invest quite a lot in public works. Um, I've always, or, or, or already mentioned the, the, the links between military achievement and, and building things like temples. Um, the, the aristocratic funeral seems to have become a sort of big civic set piece so that people um, uh, you know if, if if a member of a prominent family dies um you know there's a big tomb uh, there's a big funeral where people process through the city uh, wearing the sort of wax death max masks of their ancestors so that you you know you can see see how you know glorious the family has been through previous generations um so you get a, a lot a lot of um sort of theater aso- associated with um uh, elite power um The economy of the city at this date is growing quite rapidly, which obviously helps. Um, The size grows very rapidly, um, but there's quite a lot of evidence that Rome has got uh, quite substantial craft industries and is part of a a central Italian trade network um, in the local area. Um, But the downside of the growth of the city is that it becomes increasingly reliant on on imports, particularly food, to sustain it. One feature which uh, prominently contributes to um, both social and um, economic change at this date is um, it mean, might sound unpalatable to modern ears but slavery. Um, one of the things that this intense period of conquest in the 4th the century produces is an awful lot of uh, prisoners of war who um, in custom of the time are enslaved um, and also a lot of booty. Um, so You've got a lot of slaves coming into the city, which uh, can provide cheap labour. Um, they also contribute to the ethnic and cultural diversity of the city, um, and indeed some of them are, are actually quite um, uh, contribute quite a lot to the cultural development of Rome. Um, there's a tradition that um, uh, the first person to start writing drama at Rome was actually a Greek slave uh, who was uh, came to, to Rome as a prisoner of war. Um, the city begins to be very much transformed there's um not just a large number of new temples with which again you know reflects the, the military side of things um but also we're starting to get some real sort of elements of um you know public munificence um you know victorious generals sort of putting um you know so silver statues and things up in in the in in temples um and and also there's a lot of um New infrastructure for the city, which again reflects the, the speed at which it's growing. Uh, we have the first of Rome's aqueducts, uh, which is constructed at this date. Uh, we have a, a big new harbour installation, which um, reflects the need to uh, the, the need for more warehousing space for, for imports um, and to supply the city. Um, the first of the major tr- Roman trunk roads, the Via, Via Appia, is begun at the the beginning of the at the end of the fourth century. Um, and uh, we have a lot of um, investment in elite housing and, and also, as I said, elite tombs, uh, things like the tomb of the, Sisi- of the Sisi- of Scipios, which was um, located alongside the Via Appia, just outside Rome, uh, you know, which, which is a massive family mausoleum, which has uh, a lot of uh, space for a lot of different members of the family and a lot of sort of elogia, funerary inscriptions listing, listing all their, their, their achievements um so it is really a, t- a point at which rome starts to invest you know a lot in new infrastructure but but also the the changing nature of the elite is is contributing to um you know the 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 way the city develops as well um Culturally, it's a period of uh, quite considerable change. And the the really key thing here is that the uh, visual and material culture of both Rome and, and central Italy as a whole at this date is becoming increasingly influenced by Greek culture. Um, and this isn't unique. We've seen periods before in say, the 6th century when, when Greek culture has been quite influential. Um, but this is very much a different type of Greek culture um, uh, it's, and it's reflected in a whole range of different uh, contexts. Um, one of the other key aristocratic tombs of the uh, the period, on, which is found on the Esquiline, the tomb of the, the Fabian dynasty, uh, is, is um, decorated in, inside with frescoes, which seem to be very much in the Greek style. Um, there are Greek statues put up in the Comitium um greek architectural styles can be seen in the way that buildings are constructed um we find greek myths represented in greek and Etruscan in in roman and etruscan roman and etruscan art um even down to personal styles um one, one one anecdote is that the fashion for being clean shaven amongst elite Romans is down to the influx of etruscan barbers from uh, sorry um not etruscan greek barbers from sicily um so greek 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 Culture is, is having a big transformative effect on how the city looks um, and, and how elite Romans present themselves. Um, so overall, this is a, a period of, of quite considerable change um, in, uh, you know, b- both both the, both the physical infrastructure and, and the appearance of the city, and, and also the, the the way that the Roman elite behaves.
1: Well, thank you for being, being on the show today, uh, Doctor Lomas. Uh, what are you going to? As a follow-up question, uh, what can we expect from you next? Are you going on vacation? Working on our, another project? What?
2: Um, well, I've got two things on the on 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 the go at the moment. Um, uh well three things but one one of them is a bit longer term um one is that um one of my earlier books which was a student textbook a source book on roman italy uh is um being revised for a revised second edition um it's distinctly looking long in the tooth now and i'm cha- I'm, I'm revising it to both to extend the the time frame and, and to um um, update it. And some some of the, some other aspects of it. Um, the other thing is that I've been commissioned by um, the British publisher Routledge to um, produce a uh, a very comprehensive edited volume um, on uh, Magna Graecia, uh which is going to be really quite quite an exciting project because it's it's going to be um, cover you know everything from sort of theories and models of colonization through to you know different aspects of culture different aspects of history and the archaeological developments it's it's, go, it's going to have about 48 different chapters which is I have to say, looking looking after 48 different contributors it's going to be like herding cats. But um, you know, it, it was too too good a too too good an offer to turn down. So that that's that's the next thing, which is in the process of being set up. Um, slightly longer term, um, I've got a long uh, overdue. I'm ashamed to say, um, a book on contract with Cambridge University Press to write write a book about Italy and Rome in the age of Cicero, and that 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 is something I'm nibbling away at, but not. Uh, it's, 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 it's obviously going to be some way off.
1: Well, we hope, we hope that you remember us for, for all those projects. Yes, indeed, I will. Yes, thank you. So this is Ryan Tripp on behalf of Dr. Lomas. The book is The Rise of Rome, From the Iron Age to the Punic Wars, uh, published uh, in 2018 by Harvard University Press. Again, this is Ryan Tripp on behalf of the New Books Network the Archaeology Channel. Tune in next time.